I gotta say, I love this setup that I have where I'm like basically standing desk mode because I feel so much more mobile oh. in my podcasting abilities. I like you can't tell, but I've got like my hands on my hips. I'm doing like a very sassy. I I, I can tell. Yeah, I actually I can do my stretches. I can limber up. <laughs> I'm so happy you can do the time warp while we're talking. <laughs> it makes me so comfortable. <laughs> hello, hello, and welcome to Skeleton Closet, a podcast at the intersection of queerness and horror. I'm Jake. And I'm Shannon. Welcome. And welcome, everybody. Thank you. Yeah, thank you and welcome to our podcast. We've been on a bit of a break. Um, it was for mental health reasons, but we are back better than ever. And we've actually decided to make a few changes after our first 10 episodes. Yeah, really quickly, we won't waste too much time off the top getting into this. But uh, one thing is that we are going to be, uh, unfortunately for some, we're going to be discontinuing our Discord server uh, for the time being, at least. Um, that was, that was my idiot brainchild, I'll say, off, off the top. And, uh, <laughs> I think it was something that was a good idea, but a lot of the podcasts that I was sort of trying to emulate with that idea already have like tens of thousands of followers. Um, and we've got like 12, if we're being generous. <laughs> so seven, I think it's seven. Yeah. <laughs> we're, look, we're a small but mighty community at this point. We're pretty much doing this for fun. Um, and it just felt like we really were not. I don't know, we were, like, forgetting to update the Discord every once in a while, too. And it was just, like, we're going to keep it to, like, more accessible channels for the time being as we try to, like, grow our base because, um, you know, it just wasn't wasn't really popping off. Um, we also want to say a big formal thank you to Lord Shen, like, the one member of our Discord who was, like, actually trying to keep things active. We do appreciate... Uh, God bless. Yeah, we appreciate all of your interaction with us, but uh, I think the three of us together were... We're not quite a full a full unit. So yeah, we're gonna try to move yeah, to Yeah, we're not a full thruple. <laughs> correct. That is correct. <laughs> That's a true statement. So yeah. yeah, we're gonna like be more active on our Instagram, I think. We we might try to put some content mm. on our Twitter TBD TBC. Um Twitter's also just not a healthy yes. place. So I don't know. We'll see. We're we're gonna do a little it's bit not, more. Planning. But <laughs> but we can make it healthier, right? Like we we can fix it, you know? We we could be the difference with Twitter. I, I really think so. One tiny podcast against the world and <laughs> millions of bots and Elon Musk. And Elon Musk. Oh, I, honestly, I love watching the... I, I get, like, Google News updates about, like, what's going on with Elon and Twitter, and I'm like, oh, shit, what's happening now? Who's going to be suing who? Yeah, it's kind of a never-ending drama. So they've got, you know, they've got Elon, they've got millions of bots, and we've got t two queers, a podcast, and a dream. But, you know, we're... <laughs> yeah, and Lord Shen. And Lord Shen. We've got a fucking lord on our side, man. Yeah, if if one person's got our back, we know it's Lord Shen. Um, yeah. Anyway, Shannon, what so, movie are we here to discuss this week? Yeah. Oh my god, I was gonna ask you the exact same thing. <laughs> oh, That's so bizarre. Oh fuck, I thought you knew. <laughs> Okay, uh, let's see. It looks like, um, oh, Velvet Buzzsaw, a 2019 film starring the most wonderful Jake Gyllenhaal. We also have Rene Russo, Zaw Ashton, Tony Collette, 
Natalia Dyer, Davy Diggs, and John Malkovich. Yeah, I mean, what are your um, initial thoughts on the movie? This was your first viewing. Um, I've seen it before. So yes. what did you think? What were your, like, what's your first impression? Well, my my first impression, I fucking messaged you when I was, like, one-third of the way through the movie being like, Jake, I love this movie, and I stand by that. It just got better and better as it went along. One of my friends had told me they were like, oh, it's a pretty, like, surrealist film and so that got me like a little excited because like this is supposed to be one of like the queer horror movies Mm. and i i was a little shocked that there wasn't more like queerness to it but like it's one of the first movies that pops up in google when you search like a queer horror movie oh that's interesting and i i i loved it i (laughs) i thought it was very well done i thought it was well shot i thought it was immersive i loved the they had a couple different storylines all pulled into one and we don't even get to all the different storylines and like the summary we're going to give like i had to cut out a few storylines but it I, i i thought it was an enjoyable ride and it really like, I'm a person who will, like, watch a movie and play a game on their phone or something at the same time, right? Mm-hmm. But with this movie, like, I had to, like, full attention, so I really loved that. It, like, really gave my brain a lot of stuff to chew on as I was watching. So it was, like, very satisfying after the first watch, and it was, like, even more satisfying after the second watch. What about you, Jake? What did you think? Yeah, I mean, I agree with pretty much all of what you just said. I'm typically a person who really likes a movie with a small cast. Um, Like, I'm really into, like, give me, like, you know, a few people who are really complex and in-depth and let me watch all their complexities unfold. Um, And this is a movie with a huge cast. Like, there are so many named Mm. characters. There are quite a lot of characters who get, you know, I'd say, like, more than five, ten lines kind of thing. Um, you, you'd kind of be sitting here all day if you tried to name everyone and their actors and everything. Yeah. Um, but it, it doesn't feel like it. Like, a, a lot happens in this movie. There's there's a hell of a lot going on. I feel like it maybe doesn't set in until, like, a good, yeah, third or halfway through the movie as to just, like, the scope yeah. of this world that they've sort of set up. And, um, it, and it doesn't manage to also, like, lose any threads throughout that, too. Like, we'll talk about... You, you mentioned, like, yeah, there are some storylines that we're probably barely going to touch on, but everything feels like it mm-hmm. belongs. Nothing feels like it's extra or out of place. Um, it, it's really well executed, which I think it points to very strong writing and editing and pacing as well. That it, It's, it's big. It's a big movie. There's a lot going on, but it never feels exhausting or, or draining or anything like that. Let's start with this summary. Would you like to go first? I will go first. Um, <laughs> taking charge here. All right, everybody, say hello to Morph Morph Van Vandewalt. That protagonist's name. We'll talk about it. It's a mouthful. It's great. It's not even like a long name. It's just like the the syllables aren't friendly to my mouth. I feel like I'm gonna be like stumbling over it throughout this whole episode. Perfect start. Say hello hello to our protagonist, Jake Gyllenhaal, aka Morph Vandewalt. <laughs> 
an art critic, and the main character of the film. Uh, our story begins at a large art exhibition in Miami. Morph is in attendance along with his longtime friend, Josefina. Uh, Josefina works as a receptionist for Redora Hayes, the owner of Hayes Gallery. Um, at the exhibition, Hayes is showcasing a work of art entitled Sphere. Uh, the piece is a large silver sphere as tall as a person with numerous holes uh, bored into it. Guests are meant to reach their arm into the hole and to experience a hidden sensation. Uh, as guests put their arms into the sphere, they react with delight and intrigue. Later, Morph is attending a party with Josefina, where they lament their love lives. Josefina has been cheated on, and Morph is getting cold feet because his boyfriend has been talking about marriage. Ugh. <laughs> At the party, we meet an up-and-coming artist named Damrish. Damrish is in the process of speaking to Redora because she wants to exhibit his art and represent him. Damrish's contrast with the party is striking. He has been living homeless just six months ago and has gone from putting his art up on the street side to creating a grassroots artist collective. After the party, Morph and Josefina unwind, and things turn mm, intimate. Uh, during a drunken episode in Berlin, the pair had once had relations. Uh, due to their pitiful love lives, the two come together once again in Miami. Uh, Morph reveals that Josefina makes him feel confused rather than, you know, aroused. His confusion makes sense because Morph is ostensibly a gay man. Back in Los Angeles, Josefina returns home to her apartment only to find a deceased elderly man in the hallway. It turns out that that man, Vetril Dees, was an artist and left instructions that everything in his apartment was to be destroyed with no traces left behind. The man owned a cat, and when Josefina hears the cat meowing that evening, she goes to investigate and to discover that the man's apartment is full of breathtaking paintings. Dees was a private man and a very private artist. The art world has never heard of him until now. Josefina, sensing that she could make a lot of money from selling his art, takes all of the paintings she can from Dees' apartment. Then, working with Rodora and the Hayes Gallery, she begins to profit from the dead artist. So in order to keep from flooding the market, Rodora decides to squirrel away a few dozen Dees pieces. Dees nuts, am I right? Uh, Bryson, a maintenance <laughs> worker... <laughs> Bryson, a maintenance worker for the Hayes Gallery, is sent to deliver numerous crates to storage. Uh, these boxes are filled with these paintings, which Bryson discovers when he becomes nosy and opens up a crate for himself. Uh, Bryson removes a painting from one crate, likely intending to keep the painting. Uh, however, he accidentally lights his shirt on fire, hallucinates seeing Deese, and crashes into an abandoned gas station. Uh, Bryson breaks into the gas station and finds water to soothe his burn wounds. Um, above the sink, there's a painting of some monkeys working on a car, and the monkeys reach out of the painting to attack him. Uh, Bryson is never seen again. In other news, <laughs> we have John Don Don, the owner of a rival art gallery to Hayes, and John Don Don hires a private investigator to dig up dirt on Vetral Dees. It turns out that Dees served in the military for two years after aging out of an orphanage, and then he tracked down his abusive father and murdered him. Dees then served time in a prison and was placed in a hospital for the criminally insane. At this psychiatric hospital, he was subjected to cruel medical experimentations. 
Years later, however, the program for the criminally insane was shut down and Deese was released. He then began working as a janitor at a veteran's hospital and stayed at that job for the remaining 40-odd years of his life. Don Don plans to release this incriminating information the following day, but before he can leave the gallery, he's drawn to an exhibit of a, a partial room. Uh, Don Don steps into the exhibit and becomes stuck in the art. The partial room becomes whole and Don Don is trapped. He's wearing a silk scarf, which tangles with an overhead beam as he attempts to flick, fix uh, a flickering light bulb. Losing his footing, Don Don is left to hang by the neck and dies in the exhibit. At Don Don's funeral, a few things happen. Josephina meets Damrish, saying she's a big fan. We also have a colleague complaining to Morph about his unfavorable review of a piece called Hobo Man, which is a speaking robot dressed as a homeless man. And Morph's review killed the sale, and the robot is now wasting away in a storage facility instead of in some rich person's house. <laughs> Where art is meant to it's be. It's mentioned that Don... Yeah, exactly! Where all good art is meant to die. I mean, be... <laughs> So it's mentioned that Don Don is seen as having died by suicide, whereas we, the audience, know otherwise. After the funeral, as Morph and Josephina are having sex, Morph begins seeing things. It seems like a hand is reaching out of a Deese painting to grab him. As Morph gets his eyes checked the next day at an, uh, at an optometrist, wow, optometrist, <laughs> Josephina is seen driving with none other than Damrish. Um, Morph meets with an art restorationist and learns that Deese uh, had mixed his own blood with some of his paints to create the reddish-black color used for shadows in his paintings. His blood was found in every single painting he made. Meanwhile, at a museum exhibition, uh, Gretchen, who's an art acquisitionist representing a private buyer, is checking on a display of Sphere. Sphere is the large silver statue from the beginning of the film. It kind of looks like the bean in Chicago, um, but with holes in it. That's it does. Yeah. yeah. Um, do you know the backstory where the artist hates it being called the bean, but the artist is also like a huge, pre like pretentious prick. So we all like to call it the bean anyway. Um, anyhow, oh, I like that. <laughs> alone in the museum, Gretchen uh, approaches Sphere and slides her arm into one of the holes. When she does, something inside Sphere pulls her arm in further and cuts it off above the elbow. Uh, in the morning, the guards assume Gretchen's body to be part of the exhibit and allow people in, her body and blood all over the floor, guests admiring the art. Uh, it took until a maze gallery assistant named Coco shows up and is horrified to find Gretchen's body. Um, Coco, by the way, is the same assistant who found Don Don's body uh, earlier in the movie. This becomes a theme. Yes, Coco. How many bodies does she find? Three! She finds three bodies! That's right, more people die! So, the Deese exhibit is booming. Its success is rising, regardless of all the death around it, or maybe because all of the death around it. Josephina is reporting this exact thing to... Re R oh my god, I can't say her name. Redora. Over the phone when Morph arrives at her door. Morph walks in to discover that Josephina is sleeping with Damrish. <gasps> bah, bah, bah. Morph leaves, stunned. <laughs> he goes to a different exhibit that day to view it in private. It is a sound exhibit, which is supposed to serenade the viewer with whale noises. However, Morph has a different experience. 
From all around, Morph is assaulted by voices, his own and others, reading out negative reviews he's written before. The voices overwhelm Morph, and it's revealed to him that he was actually standing in silence, as the technician had yet to turn the whale sounds on. Morph leaves before hearing the actual exhibit. Realizing that Deese is the connection between the recent deaths, Morph decides to write an article outing Deese art as dangerous. He decides to put all of his Deese in storage as quickly as possible. He hires Coco to assist him with the storing. Um, meanwhile, Josefina goes to a downtown bar with Damrish. Damrish runs into the man who runs his old artist collective and is inspired to leave Hayes Gallery and return to the collective. Upset by his betrayal, Josefina goes to leave the bar but discovers her car has been blocked in. While waiting for a tow truck to arrive, Josefina is entranced by some graffiti on a wall, which transforms into gallery doors. She enters the gallery and gazes at the art around her, but as she does, paint bleeds from the art pieces and seeps across the floor, up Josefina's shoes, and up her legs. Uh, when the paints reach her skin, the colors turn to ink and bleed into her skin. Soon, she is completely colored by the painting's ink and becomes a ghostly figure in the graffiti on the wall across from the bar. That was an artful description of that, um, by the way. That was, like, tough to oh. describe how that happened, but that's exactly how it happened. So, well done. <laughs> oh, thank you. Yeah, I I loved this death. Like, it was... It was... It was inspired. <laughs> so, as Josefina is busy becoming art, Morph is at his storage locker and comes face-to-face -face with none other than Hobo Man. Uh, and Hobo Man is an interactive piece of art, which is essentially a robot dressed up in rags. Morph has given Hobo Man a bad review, thus killing his chances of being s sold and bought. So Hobo Man chases Morph through the facility and corners him at a gated chain link door. Hobo Man pushes against Morph and snaps his neck. Meanwhile, Redora is safe-ish at home and almost crushed by a large piece of art sculpture which falls during high winds. The next day, Coco discovers Morph's body, <laughs> once a third time's the charm, uh, and calls- Number three! Yeah. <laughs> three bodies, ah, ah, ah. I'm editing that out, that was so painfully unfunny, oh my god. Wow, no, um... don't you dare edit that out. <laughs> ah, 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 ah. Uh... <laughs> Coco discovers Morph's body and calls to inform Rodora. Like Morph, Rodora decides to have every piece of art removed from her home. As workers take out all the pieces, 47 different pieces to be exact, Rodora finally feels safe in her home. But as she sits outside, we see the tattoo of a velvet buzzsaw on the nape of her neck. It begins to bleed, and then it begins to move, and finally it begins to spin and saws into Rodora's flesh. <laughs> Meanwhile, wow, lots of meanwhile. Lots of meanwhile. Meanwhile, Coco is moving out of LA. She packs her bags into the trunk of a car and takes along her cat, which is actually the cat left behind by Vetrol Dees. During the drive, Coco observes art for sale on the sidewalk. The man selling the art is hanging up Dees paintings on a chain link fence. He sells one for meh five dollars to a couple and proceeds to hang more these are the paintings that bryson had been trying to deliver for storage and they were scavenged by the homeless population after bryson disappeared the film concludes with a soothing scene of piers a well-known artist drawing in the sand of a beach with a large stick 
As the waves lap at the shore, his stick marks are gradually erased, but Piers continues to draw. He is barefoot, and he seems at peace, creating art simply for himself. And the credits roll um, on that image. And this is one thing we were talking about. The movie is so big and there's so many characters and so much goes on. This movie has John Malkovich and he's there for like a pretty, I would say like a pretty consequential um, side narrative story arc. And we didn't mention him until the last paragraph because so much other stuff happened. This this summary may be hard to follow if you haven't seen the movie, but I think this is truly the best way you could summarize it in, you know, the amount of time we have. Yeah, like, essentially, we've got two art galleries, Mm -hmm. we've got an art reviewer, and we've got the people who work for the different art galleries, and then five of them die. Bing, bang, boom. (laughs) And there's the private buyers, and the artists themselves, and there's a a lot. Oh, of course. There's a lot happening. There's... There's there's a lot going on, but it's it really is a striking movie. Like it's quite beautiful. Not only do you have like the film itself as a piece of art, but you have all of the pieces of art that you get to see during the film. So it was a very aesthetically pleasing movie. This is maybe like among all of the movies we've talked about, I would say this is maybe the hardest one to grasp if you haven't actually seen it. Like I Mm-hmm. I uh, I would really recommend watching this one. I don't know. I compare it to like maybe the lighthouse in that sense, where it's like, yeah. I don't I don't know that you can fully grasp the movie from hearing people talk about it. It's it's a very visceral experience. I think. Yeah, and and it's on Netflix. So I That's mean, true. if you got a subscription, like easy peasy lemon squeezy, it's right there for you. Well, Canadian Netflix so. anyway. <laughs> Uh, oh, yeah. Well, I, th- I think it was a movie made by Netflix, Oh, though. okay. Like, I, I think they were the production. Oh, good for them. That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, then, yeah, then, yeah it's so, probably on there. Let's, 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 let's try our hand at analyzing some of this, because it's, it's, there's a lot going on. And we've got to talk about the commodification of art. So go for it, Jake. Kick us off. Yeah, I mean, to me, this was like the main sort of through line, maybe the thesis of the movie. It, it's sort of a, a damnation of the commodification of art. Um, all of the victims of the movie are punished for their part in sort of putting greed or th- their own personal priorities or, or their careers over um, s- sort of just the virtue of, of art and creation um, and, and creativity. Mm-hmm. Bryson stole those paintings for himself uh his car literally crashes at an abandoned gas station named humble he's he's sort of serving himself up a a piece of humble pie um you noted too that he's like comparatively lower class compared to a lot of the other people in in the movie yeah so like we have the situation that like this art the artist specifically after he died he wanted all of the art to be destroyed so like this art should have never hit the market in the first place and like we even have this scene where, um, oh my god, there were so many names. Josephina. Yeah. Where Josephina, the one who found the art, right, she's talking to, like, lawyers, and they're like, you can't say that you found the art in his apartment. You know, in order to, like, gain ownership over the art, you need to have found it in the dumpster. Mm. So they're like, do you remember that now? And she's like, oh, I remember. I found the art in a dumpster, not in his apartment, right? So... They're already having to, like, lie in order to get this art on market. And so, like, I, I thought Bryson was, like, kind of interesting. I, I fucking died that the, like, gas station is named Humble. Because, like, <laughs> Bryson is literally the opposite of Humble. Like, wh- even when he's just, like, 
you know, installing art. He's, like, trying to brag. He's like, oh, I, I also, you know, I'm an artist, too. I'm not just a handyman. And, like, talks about, oh, I can get tickets for this exhibition or whatever. But compared to the rest of the, like, characters in the movie, Bryson is comparatively lower class. You know, he's disregarded because he's just an installer. He's just a transporter, you know. He even wears dog tags, you know, highlighting his belonging to the kind of, like, soldier class or, like, the working class of the art gallery world. And I I thought it was interesting that, you know, his death happens not at an art gallery, but instead it happens at this abandoned gas station, you know, kind of, like, uh, really emphasizing that working class feel and, you know, getting pulled into the painting, which we don't actually see, so we're not sure what really happens to Bryson. All we know is he disappears, you know, and, like, he was he was such a douchebag. Like, he was <laughs> constantly wearing AirPods. Like, he didn't even take out his AirPods to, like, talk to people. And to me, that is, like, peak douchebaggery. Just saying. Oh. Just saying. He, he's so notable, I think, in the movie because literally everyone else in the movie is, like, conspicuously rich and, like, um, I don't know, mm. high class and, like, avant-garde in the way... Like, every single character, whenever you picture them, just know that, like, they have an annoying haircut. They have, <laughs> like, really conspicuous eyeglass frames. They're wearing pants with some sort of crazy pattern on them that are like bell bottom from the seventies or something like that. Like that type of contemporary, like self presentation where like, I get dressing out there, right? I'm not like dissing people who wear like fun patterns and funky mm -hmm. stuff. Like I'm that, I'm that kind of person, but like, um, everyone is so conspicuously like the, the type of stuff where like, this just looks bad. This is not functional. You are just broadcasting that you're rich and have like quote unquote taste. That's my opinion anyway. Um, Beyond Bryson, the other victims of the movie, right? Don Don planned to leak this, this damning information about Deese to devalue his competitor's collection. Um, Gretchen got blended by the sphere for trying to strong arm the modern art gallery on behalf of her client, um, threatening to have an emerging artist gallery canceled, which that was extra fucked up because she used to work at that gallery. And then she comes right back on behalf of her private client to try to strong arm them. Um, Morph is crunched by a piece of art that he quote unquote killed with a bad review. Uh, and he's haunted by another character named Ricky that we haven't even mentioned till this point, who was emotionally wrecked by a bad review. Um, Josephina got turned into a swatch for stealing and commercializing Deese's art, which he demanded to be destroyed. Um, Redora's tattoo removal gone wrong as a result of basically her entire career, her, her part of the Deese disaster, um, her admission that she wouldn't have done anything different if she knew Deese's wishes and ultimately turning her back on her artistic origins. Yeah, I think we get a, a few good messages from this, but I, I love how you called it Redora's like botched tattoo <laughs> removal. <laughs> like, that, I really like that. You know, I guess it's her, um, so, like, back in the day, Rodora was in a punk group called Velvet Buzzsaw. Mm -hmm. And, like, that, maybe it's, like, the punk in her that, you know, finally, like, punishes her for, like, turning her back, quite literally, on art and, like, what art really means, you know? Because I think Rodora really shows us, like, you know, she's the last death in the movie. Like, it seems like she'll get away with it, but ultimately like you can't escape art she may remove the paintings from her house and like the sculptures and whatnot all 47 of them 
but she can't remove so easily the ink from her skin. It's it's really strange how this movie kind of takes on like uh, the the evil force is almost a force of good. Like I'll say almost, not quite, but it's kind yeah. of seems like the it's almost like that Bible story about like the the plagues that that rocked Egypt and everything. Like it's like these awful things have to happen to these people for them to see the error of their ways, and it all ends bloody for everybody, but. Um, and, and the people who are spared by the end of the movie are those who are sort of comparatively virtuous as compared to the many protagonists who get got by the art spirits. Yeah, it very much strikes me as like, um, like comeuppance yeah. and like revenge. Not even, yeah, like, like the art is exacting revenge on behalf of Deese and Deese's wishes right because it's only people who like seek to profit you know from the art who are being punished aside from don don like i don't know about mr john don don whose name goes on and on and on <laughs> nice he's one. he's a bit different yeah he's a bit different because he he's our death that you know is kind of like the least connected to Deese's artwork you know, he's not selling any Deese, like, perhaps he's maybe bought a Deese or two, but ultimately he's just, like, a kind of slimy guy that's trying to, like, ruin Deese's reputation. Even though, I did like how the private investigator he hired points out to Don Don that releasing this information about how Deese, you know, had, you know, murdered his own father and, like, in a very, very cruel, long, drawn-out way mm -hmm. and been, like, pronounced criminally insane that that would probably raise the price of his art, like, surviving artwork. But nevertheless, Don Don thought, you know, thought otherwise. And, I mean, I really liked his death because it really showed this kind of, like, how the dressing to impress and this kind of you know, air of prestige that they all try to put on and, you know, putting on those airs, that that will be the death of them because, like, they're peddling this presentation, you know, that they're all such, you know, amazing and effortless and, like, flawless people. But to Don Don, that's what killed him, right? Because he's got this, like, beautiful silk scarf, like, tied around his neck mm. and that becomes a noose right so i see that don don's death like it highlights this impact that art has on a person you know he literally steps into the world created by an artist you know while uh drawn to this like constructed exhibit and the there's a film playing in the exhibit as well and the film pulls him in and immerses him in the art piece which leads to his death by hanging you know and outsiders will see it as suicide but you know, we, the audience, know that he kind of built his own gallows um, mistakenly in the art world, and he's hung for his crimes against Deese's art. Ooh -hoo -hoo. I really like that framing of it. I think it was interesting what you said about the private investigator, too, and, and saying, like, oh, this story will actually probably increase the value of the art. I kind of feel like that in itself is a commentary as well, how... Um, art can mean something to someone and like obviously you know a backstory a context like does add flavor to anything that you're gonna look at but um like it's this co commodification of like a tragic backstory right people seem to sort of fetishize that if you mm -hmm. 
came up poor and then you know fought your way through adversity like obviously that's that's great and that's to be commended and we love we love to see that but it's sort of like this fetishistic like oh my god his backstory was so dark he was abused he killed his dad like mm-hmm. all of that stuff is is these people are kind of like hungry for that tragedy in a way um yeah hmm. i think we really get that with morph's character because um morph when he sees Deese's paintings for the first time he's like oh my god I need to write a book, you know, I'm getting so tired of writing opinion pieces and critique is draining and whatnot, but I want to write a book. And I feel like, you know, Morph is definitely the one who suffers the most for, like, fetishizing the suffering of the artist, you know, because he's trying to write this book and going through, like, the toils of trying to write the book, but then eventually being, you know, like, killed by... Uh, you know, art that he did write about, but wrote about unfavorably, you know, so he's trying to write about this, you know, art of a dead artist, but ends up dying by the hands of art that were made by a different artist. Yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah, in, in all cases, it kind of feels like the art is getting revenge on the the victim in question, but that one in particular, <clears throat> pardon me, in particular feels so personal because that's the one that he mm. really like he he and that piece of art him morph and hobo man uh had like an interaction earlier right like he did something to hobo man it's not like gretchen did anything bad to sphere it's not like um mm. uh what's tonight bryson did anything to the monkey painting um morph mm-hmm. specifically is getting sort of revenged on i guess you could say that about Rodora too she kind of turned her back on her past and that's her tattoo which yeah. is the name of her old band sort of getting revenge on her for literally turning her back selling out yeah selling out that's yeah she's like, she's kind of your classic sellout story yeah like i i don't like to use the term sellout because like i feel like people drop that too fast about you know like indie indie you know independent groups or companies or whatever who like take money because like dude that's valid if you if you want to fucking have enough money to be financially stable sell the fuck out Mm -hmm. go for it but like you know she's i guess like the true you know kind of form of selling out you know and like making you know everything for the upper class which please don't peddle you know art to the you know people who are not going to be able to appreciate it or like I, I don't know maybe you should just sell your art make sure you can eat food that isn't just like cup noodles you know yeah absolutely it's it's a tough balance right because like obviously i say i'm gonna say we here and i'm i'm saying that about like you know the two of us in particular i i'm gonna assume your mm. point of view on this that you know artists deserve to make a living they deserve mm. to eat um it's yeah. yeah, like it's you deserve to have a roof over your head and whatever. Um, and so, but in the world that we live in, it's hard to do that. It's, it you know, not everyone's going to see your art as as valuable as you do. And in order for art to be made or for people to be paid for their art, a lot of the times it has to be like commercially viable. It has to be acceptable to mm-hmm. sponsors and um, brands and and it needs to be able to make money for a corporation in order for, in order for them to you know pay your bills um, whether that's right or wrong that is sort of the way of the world so it's tough to strike this balance of like 
art should be made for the sake of art and people deserve to be paid for their art because unless you find someone incredibly generous mm. you're you're not going to get a whole lot of uh you know bang for your buck unless you make your art commercially viable yeah and i think this um like on top of all of that you have to appeal to critics right you have to be kind of like quote-unquote current or fashionable in your art mm -hmm. which is morph's job right morph is our um art reviewer and art critic and we see in the film that morph's words his written words have a huge impact on people's lives right so they kill the sale for hobo man mm -hmm. but at some point morph also goes to a gallery show by this guy named ricky and ricky is the ex-boyfriend <laughs> of josephina yeah and josephina specifically asked morph oh can you go to my ex's show and like write a bad review and it's kind of heartbreaking because morph does he goes to the show he writes a bad review and ricky ends up after um reading the bad review of his gallery um drinking a ton and then crashes his car and ends up in a coma and you know the sad thing is morph actually liked his art mm -hmm. but he wrote the bad review because josephina asked him to now it's a good question to ask should morph be held responsible for ricky's response to his critique i think that's an interesting question it's uh because i believe that ricky made the choices that he made right like ricky's an adult mm -hmm. ricky can choose not to do that stuff to himself and should not have um and and he put other people in danger yeah. by drinking and driving right that's that's part of it um exactly but yet it is part of the consequences that that morph jake gyllenhaal's character is facing for selling out also right? he too is selling out to josephina um mm -hmm. because he wants something that she's got and so he kind of lets himself be talked into it he he kind of uh against his his principles his morals his better angels he decides to write this bad review and so you know us following him is our I would say he's our protagonist. He probably gets the most screen time in the yeah. movie. This movie's got a huge cast. I don't know if we mentioned that. So um, <laughs> it's it's maybe a situation where he gets the the plurality of the screen time, but not the majority. Um, anyhow, since we're seeing the story sort of through his eyes, it feels like this is the consequences that he faces for selling out in that way. Mm. Um, so should he be held directly responsible? No, but it is definitely like his struggle with that with the outcome of his actions is definitely part of his sort of story, his hero's journey. Yeah. And I think it, um, you have a quote here from, uh, Robert Eggers, our favorite. Writer, <laughs> yeah. Um, well, that I think relates quite well. Yeah. And well, you know, this is sort of like, I guess a, a last, not a last, we'll probably come back to it, but like when it comes to the commodification of art, we'll move on to like, you know, some more discussion on critique next. But he said, Robert Eggers said, this sounds super uber precious, but I think it's hard to do this kind of creative work in a modern secular society because it becomes all about your ego and yourself. And I'm envious. Uh, I'm envious of medieval craftsmen who are doing the, who were doing the work for God. And that becomes a way to, you get to be creative, to celebrate something else. And also you're censoring yourself because it's not about like me, 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 me. So you say, oh, I got to rein that back because that's not what this altarpiece needs to be. 
any worldview where everything around them is full of meaning is exciting to me because we live in such a tiresome, lame commercial culture now. Um, end quote. That was all Robert Eggers. That clearly comes from like a video interview or a podcast or something. It's not like very well, like mm-hmm. it's not written and pieced together in, in a way. But um, I, I, I thought I, I actually just came across that like on Tumblr, like unrelated to research for this, but I thought, yeah, I thought it applied, right? Like it's, I think that's super valid. Like art is such a subjective thing and under capitalism or, or in this like commercialized sense, it because it becomes something that people try to quantify. It is all about like valuing like, okay, this piece of art is worth $4 million and this piece of art is worth $1.5 million and that truly is something that, like, to me, again, it's hard because artists need to eat. You need to quantify how much money you're going to give someone somehow. Um, but art art is worth nothing and everything, right? There are pieces of art that I have in my house that mean everything to me that I would not give up for large sums of money. I'm not going to go put $4 million on the table because let's be honest, I'd, I'd give up a lot for $4 million. But um <laughs> art, art can be the same piece of art can be worth everything to someone and worth nothing to someone else and that's just the the true nature mm-hmm. of subjectivity and and how art is um but when everything comes from a commercial culture it becomes hard to distinguish what is good what is bad what is commercially viable what is not and and what does that all mean to everyone else who's just trying to sort of enjoy things and find things to like in the world i think that all ties in like between the quote where robert eggers is talking about how art is all about like ego and yourself Mm -hmm. it ties into ricky's story of you know being his ego essentially being so wounded by a critique that he ends up you know driving himself into a coma and to you know this how the presentation and commodification of art can be harmful Right. At some point, Gretchen says in the movie, all art is dangerous. Mm -hmm. And I think she's quite right about that, because in this like capitalistic system, art is indeed dangerous because art is the vehicle of, you know, transgressive ideas. Mm -hmm. But it's also the vehicle of these hard emotions. And it can like literally be dangerous to own a piece of art. It can be dangerous to look at a certain piece of art because it could be triggering, right? Or, you know, it could arouse these, you know, different emotions that are not maybe so favorable to have coming up. Absolutely. Sorry, I'm like letting that sit. That was like, (laughs) I like that insight. That was really good. Yeah. And I mean... Right? Like all art is dangerous. I loved that. It is. Message. And I mean, in so many different ways, right? Because it is, like you said, it's the vehicle of transgressive ideas. And then it's also like, it's such a competitive space when, when applied to the capitalistic mm-hmm. worldview, right? Like artists are, artists tend to be a, a temperamental type of person or someone who is very passionate. And, you know, it gets to a point where a lot of times you'll hear artists nowadays say things like, oh, in order to make it in this industry, you have to want it so bad. This can be the only thing you could possibly do. So it reaches this extreme mm-hmm. where a lot of people see it as like, if I don't make a career in the arts, I am not, uh, I'm not alive. Like I am, uh, my life is worthless and all of that stuff. And we'll, we'll kind of talk about like fame and things like that later and, and the drive for it and, and hubris. Um, 
But I mean, I think it all comes down to like in, in this world, in this paradigm that we're discussing, things need to be classified and quantified. Um, and I think let's, you know, let's move on into talking about the world of critique and, and what Morph does, his living, right? Morph's world is all about yeah. classifying, essentializing, judging the elements of everything and everyone he comes across. He does not simply enjoy art. He does not simply enjoy time no. with other people. Very little seems to speak to him throughout the movie other than Deese's paintings. Uh, he tells Josefina mm. during an intimate moment that her skin is quote, the most beautiful cross between almond and saddle brown. Like, it, that I, that made my skin crawl. I don't know about you, but that moment in the movie, I was like, this dude is yucky. Like, I, I okay, so hear me out, hear me out. Mm -hmm. I don't, I didn't find Morph yucky at all. I actually found him incredibly relatable. Oh, really? Um, And I know this must come up as the like you know is is this movie gay enough there's there's barely any gayness in it mm. but i from the moment i saw morph's character i was like boom okay i see my representation <laughs> oh. in film suddenly it has come to me because morph absolutely is like gay af <laughs> you can tell from the way he takes off his glasses to put on other glasses because i literally do that exact same thing all the time like taking off sunglasses in one hand putting on regular glasses with other hand like his gesticulation beautiful and like i know it's really like cringy and uncomfortable when he like compliments josephine on her skin tone but he is um expressing aesthetic love and like mm. that's only a, like a kind of thing I learned about through asexuality, mm. where honestly I think Morph is probably pretty asexual, um, because his world is all about aesthetics and beauty. And you know, if I could, like, describe what it's like to be an asexual person, like it's you know the world is a museum and everyone around me are these beautiful sculptures, and I want to walk through that museum. And I don't want to touch any of the sculptures, but I want to admire all the beautiful sculptures. Hmm. And that's kind of how it feels like as an asexual person, like encountering other people. Like people are beautiful. I just don't want, like, I, I just don't want to like get <laughs> physically involved. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm fine with like a hands-off museum. Like this doesn't need to be an interactive exhibit to be a good exhibit. Uh -huh. And I think more when he's complimenting Josefina, like that's kind of the vibe it gives me is that he appreciates her aesthetics. Like at some point she's wearing this like pale yellow sweater and he's like, oh, I really love that jumper. Corn silk is a beautiful color, you know, with your complexion. Mm. And so more, more than he doesn't like Josefina because she's a woman. No, Morph likes Josefina because she looks aesthetic and he likes her color palette essentially hmm. and i think that's why he's confused because you know like he's having his like I, I it's like an asexual awakening as opposed to a gay awakening i guess that is so interesting we had entirely different reads on the character but like <laughs> as i hear yours i'm like no it totally makes sense i kind of feel like yeah this... and as i hear yours same. See, I saw more like the other example that I pulled was like at Don Don's funeral, he's sitting there like making fun of the music that they chose and like the color of his casket and things like that. So I see him 
or, or saw him as this way of like, oh, he's a colonizer. He's a colonizer of art. He comes in yeah. and he essentializes things. He's like, this is good. This is bad. Your skin is this specific shade of brown. And he, to me, when I, when I was looking at the way that he was quantifying and classifying those elements and, and mm-hmm. specifically Josefina. And yeah, like even when he's picking apart to me, it was nitpicking. It's picking apart. It's going like, this is right. This is wrong. All like all of that. And just what he sees in Josefina just happens to be right. So that is acceptable to him. Um, uh... And a, a lot of the time throughout this movie, I was thinking like, Hmm, if I existed in this world, they would not like me. No one would. They would be like that guy. <laughs> Where's, weird shorts that he's had since high school and is wearing a t-shirt of a fictional plumbing service called crappy's plumbing service. Um, right. Like they, I would call them. Yeah. I would trust crappy. No problem. Uh, <laughs> but like it is, uh, so that was the way that I was looking at it this whole time is Morph is the colonizer of art and, and is sort of picking mm-hmm. things apart for their value um, again, under the capitalist system and is sort of a vehicle and a mouthpiece for capitalism. Um, and I didn't think of him in this way, but no, he is he is appreciating Josephine's aesthetics at the same time. And this is part of why I love this movie, right? All of the characters are so complex. There are multiple layers to everybody. He's not simply good or bad. He's not simply, uh, as I called him, a colonizer or, you know, an asexual mm-hmm. legend. He, he simply... He's both. He simply is He's morph, both. and it's up to us, the audience, to decide what's cool about that. And that's that's what I appreciate about this movie. I also wanted yeah, to say, I, sorry, I wanted, oh, go, go for it. I, I was going to move on to my next note. Okay, I was. Yeah, me too. Okay, yeah. I was going to say I like I love this point about morph that he articulates in the movie that he doesn't love critiquing things. Yeah, like. Morph yearns to move on for it. He finds critique limiting and draining. And he sees Deese as his avenue to graduate from critique into creating something himself. So he finally wants to create, like he's been writing these pieces about art, but finally he wants to create some sort of artistic project himself, which is a book. Mm-hmm. But I I don't know. I don't know. Morph, like he... He, he doesn't want to be a mouthpiece, but he is, right? He writes, you know, Josephine's biased opinion, you know, um, and... Even though it's the opposite of he, his own opinion. I, exactly. So he is a mouthpiece. And, you know, by wanting to write this book for Deese, like, he again is going to be more of a mouthpiece for the art and the artist's story as opposed to creating something himself. So he's, you know, piggybacking off of other people to make things. And... I think they they really show that Morph has... He doesn't know what his own perspective is anymore. Like, he may have had a very sharp perspective, but I think his per- perspective has become muddled. And they show this through the glasses that he wears. So throughout the movie, Morph has a pair of sunglasses, and I have a pair of sunglasses that look remarkably similar. <laughs> <laughs> so I can, I can be Morph. Uh, and it's Morphin time. He has a pair... Morphin time, yeah. Ooh, morphing time. I like that. Uh, He also has a pair of, like, regular spectacles he wears. And then he wears these specific shades from the optometrist that are supposed to, like, protect his pupils after they've been dilated. So Morph literally wears three different sets of eyes 
during this movie. And then if you include his own set of eyes, that's four. So Morph has at least four different perspectives that he's trying to grapple with and understand all at once. And that means that he loses perspective on what his own unique perspective is. You know, so like, what is Morph's perspective? What goes on behind those eyes of the beholder? And I think that's, like, as we were saying, I think it's so cool that he he does seem to have these different perspectives, right? He has sort of competing priorities throughout. Um, and that's what led to us sort of having different reads of him as a character, right? An entirely different... Yeah. I think it's parting to me... I, I was joking around when I said it's Morphin time, but it's starting to make me think, like, maybe that's part of his name, right? It's So it's spelled M-O-R-F. I actually don't know if we ever know what it's... Like, if that's short for something. But his name I, is yeah, the no. word morph like which means to transform right so it i think that kind of like lends to his sort of fluidity and and uh, we can talk more about that later but we have sort of a profile of him as a character later on um but yeah as we said he he sort of seems to feel this urge to create he wants to graduate from from critique to actual you know synthesis of something himself but what I find interesting about him is he has been a writer his whole career. He has been writing. He's been writing up these pieces. He's been lending his perspective to different things. Um, and that was one of the things, like, I, I think maybe one of the questions this movie poses is, is critique an art form in itself? Like, mm-hmm. is that a mode of creation, lending your own artistic perspective on something to the things that you're observing? Is that art? Is it just sort of tearing down other people's art? I don't know. I feel like uh, we're left with with a gray area there do do you want me to hazard uh yeah try and answer it yeah because okay so critique is something i hold quite close to my heart because like i i don't do like art critique or anything but like in the world of academia Mm. there is so much critique that you have to go through and usually you call it like edits or revisions but really you're taking critique on your written work all the time like right as we write essays for english class you know you get back the notes on it usually written in like red ink that's critique you know Mm -hmm. and there is i think even if critique itself isn't an art i think there is an art to critique and you can do it in a very tactful artful way you know like personally when i like rip and I say, when I rip to shreds someone's essay, I fucking rip <laughs> it to shreds. Like, I, I, love, I love critique because there is something raw to it. It is very honest. And I think that's where Morph, you know, his, his methodology kind of does change when instead of being honest in his critique, and I think this is when he loses the art to critique, is when he loses that like harsh harsh honesty mm. not even harsh it doesn't have to be harsh but raw the raw honesty of evaluating something and giving an opinion you know and that that opinion will be you know um maybe not the most favorable but it will be honest because that's what i expect from critique is i expect that critique to be honest and we get that at some point between um Pierce, you know, the older established artist, and John Don Don. Mm. And Don Don is looking at his pieces of art. First, he looks at a pile of garbage and is like, wow, this is so inspired. <laughs> and Pierce is like, dude, that's 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 not art. The art is over here. But it's like you know, trash it's, from it's, like 
like byproduct <laughs> from like reprints of art he's done <laughs> in the past. Which honestly, he probably could have sold that as a sculpture. Not hmm. gonna lie, people would have loved probably. it. They would have been like, "Wow, it's so inspired." <laughs> but like. You know, uh, Pierce, he shows his, like, one piece that he's working on to John Don Don, and it's like, what do you think? Give me your honest opinion. Because, like, that's all he wants, is just an honest opinion and critique. Um, but John John doesn't have that skill. He doesn't have the skill and the art of critiquing, so he doesn't. But later, when, um, oh my god, what is her name? Rodora <laughs> looks at Pierce's art for him. She does give an honest opinion, right? So Rodora, even though she's not the critique in the movie, she does have that art form nailed down. Mm -hmm. I think Pierce is a perfect segue into talking about fame because he starts off the movie as a famous artist that people are like, he is on his way out. He is like, uh, he used to be this legendary painter. He was an alcoholic. His paint was so good. Again, like they're fetishizing the sort of tragedy of his life. And then they're like, mm -hmm. and now he's sober and he hasn't created for a while. Like his new art is not as good as his old art. Like, out, like sobriety has not been kind to his artistic output. He is sort of dealing with a bit of like whatever the painter's equivalent of writer's block is. Like he's not very, he's not producing very mm -hmm. much art. Don Don doesn't seem to like the, the new art that he is creating. He's made like one thing, but he's like mostly spending his time in his art studio, like shooting hoops. Um, so he seems to be someone who truly like him and Damrish, I would say, are our two artists who like create for the sake of creation. Right. Like um, he he does not create art when he's not moved to do so. He simply sits around and shoots mm -hmm. hoops until inspiration strikes him. And I don't know. Does he have any interaction whatsoever with the with the darker events of this movie? Like, I don't think he does. The only the only interaction we see with um, is when he's viewing a Deese painting and like grabs an alcoholic drink mm. and drinks it while looking at a Deese painting. But that's it for Pierce. Yeah. Like, he avoids all the like darkness in this movie essentially but, like we don't i don't even know if he knows people are dead <laughs> yeah i don't think so like at the end he's staying in redora's like beach house mm -hmm. like completely isolated from all the events of the art world that are going on and so i yeah he he is sort of like the character i was referring to earlier who is virtuous and thus gets to be spared uh, by the end of mm -hmm. the movie but at the end, he's just drawing circles in the sand with his sticks, right? Like, he is the person who is not motivated by fame or money. That happens to come to him, but he seems sort of indifferent to it. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, so fame is, like, one of the themes of the movie that I think really drives things along. We have quotes from, uh, Rodora says at, so, at, at some point, uh, without Josefina's discovery, quote-unquote, of Deese's art, Deese would have been consigned to oblivion. And that's sort of presented mm -hmm. as just um, almost a fate worse than death. The man is already dead. He truly cannot yeah. enjoy his fame. Uh, <laughs> but but she's she makes it sound as though if, you know, these, these paintings had not been discovered and, and published against his wishes, that would have been a bad thing for him. Um, mm -hmm. Josefina also says, what's the point of art if no one sees it? Uh, 
Meaning, like, you know, I've done a good thing by taking away, again, this art that this man's dying wish was for it to be destroyed. I have stolen it, and that's a good thing mm-hmm. that I've done. Um, so a lot of the characters in this movie see art as, as a vehicle to either money or fame. Um, they believe that if they're not getting rich and or famous off of something, then it is not worthwhile. Um, Damrish is another contrast to this. Again, a, a virtuous sort of artist. He contrasts this by leaving the big name gallery, returns to an artist collective, despite the lack of fame and money that will come his way, uh, presumably. Um, and, and notably, his departure from Josefina and Rodora ends with him alive and both of them dead uh, as a result mm-hmm. of you know the art that they've turned their back on. I, I honestly, like, I keep thinking about that question Josephina poses, you know, what is the point of art if no one sees it? You know, art, like, I, I just keep thinking about that, and I'm like, I guess the point of art is the creation itself. Mm-hmm. And again, like, it, it, I think the point of art is whatever it means to you. And if, mm-hmm. if it means something to the creator and no one else, then it's still, you know, it's still a good piece of art. It's tough because there are pieces of art that I look at and I go like, this is culturally significant. Like this deserves to be seen and appreciated for the genius that it is. Certain movies, certain paintings, certain songs, poems, whatever they are, right? And then there are certain things that I'm like, this is a notable, this is like deemed to be a noteworthy piece of art. And I think it's a piece of crap. Like, okay, I'm going to think about the Mona Lisa for a second. Like art majors don't get at me. (laughs) what's What's the hype about? I don't, She's just sitting there. She's not doing shit. Someday someone will explain to me what's cool about the Mona Lisa and maybe I'll get it, but I don't understand why it's such a famous piece of art. I truly don't. I, it means I, nothing to me. Like, <laughs> like, I look at it... Well, okay, so I, I like, love going to galleries. Same. I do too. Um, and one of the things I have started doing is whenever there's a woman who's the object of the painting, literally objectified, um, where is she looking? And most of them, you will see that her eyes are turned away somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And I think what's so, like, impressive, maybe, and subversive about Mona Lisa is that she is staring the viewer, she is staring the painter, the creator, she's fucking staring you down Mm. she wins that staring contest every single time without fail (laughs) and she fucking knows it like she knows she is being subversive while being painted so like i don't think the painting itself is that big a deal but i think the woman Ah. in the painting the woman herself who was painted she is a big deal because she fucking knew what she was doing when she sat for that portrait she knew the power she held uh. as the object essentially or at least that is that's what i would say about it from like a sociological point of view yeah i ain't no art major sorry <laughs> you know what I, I can't do an amazing analysis but that's what i get from you it. know what i appreciate even that analysis and just to be fair I, i'm gonna recant some of that i'm not like i was being facetious <laughs> and argumentative when i said it's a piece of crap i don't believe it's a piece of crap i'm just saying yeah there yeah. are certain paintings that i just that i really really like vibe with and i feel like i experience them and then there are some mm-hmm. that i don't and truly, they have nothing to do with whether or not they are, like, considered classics. That's more what I meant to get at. I, I, yeah. I didn't mean to offend anybody. Hope hope no one's feelings <laughs> are hurt. And if you love the Mona Lisa, tell me why. Like, let us know on the Instagram or something. Um, at 
at us. At, at us. You know what? Do get at me. That's what I want. Let's. I don't want to shut doors <laughs> you know here. Do get I'll, at us. I'll I'll throw myself under the bus too. Like my my most hated song is a fucking cultural staple, <gasps> and it's Beyonce's "Who Runs the World." girls who runs the world girls like i love the message sure it's great but that song i don't even know how many producers there were and everything to write the same three lines in repetition with the same beat there is no story to it there is no change in the lyrics it's only literally who runs the world girls who runs the world girls who runs this motherfucking world girls who runs this motherfucking world girls girls girls. and i'm like okay that's it. Like that's the entire. <laughs> no, song. you're so right. And that is. I mean, not hard to write, and it's stupid. Like, I I don't hate the song, but I understand. World women. You're right. You're so right. It should be. It should. <laughs> yeah. What are What are girls like? Eight year olds. I, I hate that song. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I. You know what? Honestly, okay. This world would be a lot better if it was run by eight year old girls. Yeah. Like just say it. No, you're you're probably right. Or like eight year old kids. Kids could run this world quite well because they would be like, "What do you mean those people don't have food to eat? Get them food to eat, and then everyone would have to actually feed all the hungry." Yeah, kids maybe do have like a better understanding, like an innate understanding of what's fair and what's not. <laughs> like, well, yeah, because yeah. they're they're human beings, right? You know, they're just human beings that haven't been like socialized into politics yet. You're so right. So they're the best politicians. <laughs> I support it. I support the make eight-year-olds Wait, run the world. They're critics. Bill. They're honest. They are. Um, one last thing about fame before we move on. I want to talk about hubris as well. But it, until the actual deaths start happening in this world, um, the protagonists, all of these art critics and sellers and whatever, they live in a world without mortal fear. The ultimate consequence mm-hmm. to them is becoming unremarkable. Again, Deese is dead. And they act like him becoming famous is good for him. The man is dead. It truly doesn't matter. To, and he didn't want to, his art to become famous anyhow. So truly, this is not this is not the case, but they believe it. Like, they are sort of deluded by their quest for fame. Um, oh, totally. They, they value fame over their own lives. Ricky, like, destroys himself after receiving a bad review because it seems like he would rather be, like, dead or in a coma than be an alive artist with a bad review written about him. Again, this fetishization of tragedy. They would rather be an alcoholic with an abusive past who is famous and rich than just be a guy who, like, I don't know, has a normal job and paints on the side for fun. Fame is a symptom of the (laughs) upper class, honey. And guess what? That's all capitalism. Because, uh, like, capitalism isn't all about money. Okay, I I need people to understand that capitalism is about capital and what fame is, is fame is your social capital, Mm. right? So if you look at the difference between um, Redora and Don Don, Redora has more social capital than does Don Don. And part of that comes from like her gallery, right? So her galleries you know, clientele and fame is part of Redora's capital. And I I really love how they like clash this idea of like up like um art gallery and gallery art being only upper class with Damarish, Coco, and Bryson. So Bryson is our most like you know, capital loving, capital seeking, you know, he tries to 
fluff up his feathers and make himself look more impressive and like show off that you know, that social capital that he has by working at the Hayes Gallery, having worked with other people. So he's kind of like the closest to, you know, being the the gallery art, you know, middle class. And then we have Damarish, who is an artist who started on the streets, you know, made his own grassroots art organization, but has no like social capital and it doesn't even matter how much money he has right like he presumably doesn't have that much money which josephina like jokes about she's like oh you couldn't afford that painting even if you know like could have bought it but he has like art capital right which is his creativity capital right because damrish is this hot artist he's kind of like a new up-and-coming artist and you know his his take is fresh, you know, and I think Damrish and Pierce are the only people who appreciate the Dees um, paintings because Damrish sits there at some point admiring one of the paintings that is of, you know, a person and a fire. And he's totally mesmerized by this painting and gazing at it. And he says, you know, if you sit here long enough and look at it, the painting moves. And it's almost like the fire is moving. And for other people, they don't have this kind of like artist capital. You know, they don't have their, they don't have a high enough level of art to understand Deese's paintings because they're too wrapped up in the greed, in the fame, and in the money capital. But Damrish has this high art level where he can actually connect with Deese's paintings in a non-toxic way, right? So he can see the movement in the art and not be freaked out by it whereas morph ends up being freaked out when he sees the paintings move right and he literally goes to an optometrist because he thinks there's something wrong with his eyes whereas damrish doesn't think there's anything wrong he just sees it as part of the painting which is probably what Deese originally intended so and then we have coco oh god i love coco because <laughs> coco she literally wears the same shoes in every shoot which tells you a little bit mm. about her right she's not this upper class you know she's she's trying to dress to impress but she's only 22 years old she's trying to get a stable job and she's been like fired for not being able to like act as security essentially <laughs> but coco learns how to um find capital through information and so she's got information capital even though she's not an artist herself or at least doesn't tell us she is and you know she's very low on you know the importance list mm -hmm. and but she manages to seize this information capital by listening in on stuff that Redora has been saying so anyway this, I, I'm not sure about what tangent I've gone off on. Well, yes. I think that transitions really well. I think Coco is sort of like, she feels sort of like a before image of what maybe like a Gretchen or a Redora is, <gasps> Ooh, right? Like, yeah. or, or um, Josephina. Like, she is ostensibly mm -hmm. trying to work her way up to what they are, right? She is, she is them before they become what we know them as. But she, mm. she presumably wants to you know work her way up in this industry she seems passionate about art she sort of has like maybe um like a, a doe-eyed optimism about it um but she keeps fucking finding dead bodies 
and she can't keep a job because yeah. her bosses keep dying tragically and horrifically. <laughs> and it sort of feels when yes. we're watching him pack. Oh, sorry, when we're watching her. I'm sorry for misgendering Italia Dyer. That was weird. When we're watching her pack up Deez's cat at the at the end of the movie and fly away, it feels like we're watching her escape. Like, oh god, you got yes. out before you got corrupted enough to be worth killing <laughs> like uh in yeah, the eyes of whatever dark spirit is here yeah like she she kind of takes on one of his responsibilities that he had in life mm-hmm. um and and gets to move on with it and you know she seems to leave this world behind entirely and i think maybe we assume that she's going to go on to find some like relatively normal job maybe like at arm's length from the art world maybe she goes on to be an art teacher or something like that who knows um Aww. that's yeah that's <laughs> the the most normal job i can think of is teacher so that's what i always just assume everyone does when they have a normal job <laughs> if it's not disclosed yeah um but you know so it feels like we're watching her escape she is one of the people who is um sort of spared and also like we mentioned that she finds three different dead bodies my like maybe my favorite part of the movie or my favorite line delivery in the movie is after she discovers jake gyllenhaal's body she like again the third straight uh boss of hers that she's found dead and or i guess uh, gretchen wasn't really her boss but anyhow she like turns the corner in the storage facility and she just goes she screams like a blood curdling scream and then she just goes fuck me <laughs> like it is <laughs> the third time like she's so frustrated and that's like i think ultimately that frustration is what leads her to leave um but anyway, oh, yeah. her being the the before image and maybe Rodora, Gretchen, Josefina, Morph being being the after image of, of what she was maybe perhaps to become if she stayed in this world and became corrupted. Uh, it, it leads me to talk about hubris, right? Velvet Buzzsaw is um, at its core a Pandora's box story. Josefina is Pandora and Deez's apartment is the box and everyone else reaps the, the sort of rewards from that. Um, a lot of characters see themselves as part of the problem. They see the problem with commercialization of art, but they find a way to exempt themselves from the harm of their actions, either through irony, denial, or rationalization. Um, Rodora says at one point, the point is I've, bec- I've gone from anarchist to purveyor of good taste. So I get the joke. None of this is new. It's all been done since someone charged a bone to see the first cave painting, which is a quote that I like take issue with immediately because I assume that people in the Neolithic era were not charging each other bones to look at cave paintings. They were making cave paintings to like, to create, to, to preserve their history, whatever it was. Uh, Gretchen said, I came to the museum because I wanted to change the world through art, but the wealthy vacuum up everything. Except for crumbs, the best work is only enjoyed by a tiny few, and they buy what they're told, so why not join the party? Um, and Morph's last words upon being crunched by Hobo Man, he's screaming, I understand. He's, he's like trying to, it's like a, um, what do they call it? Like a deathbed, like recantation or whatever. A deathbed confession. A deathbed confession. Like he is trying to worm his way back into the good graces of the the spirits of art before he is murdered by it um so every single one of these people thinks oh yeah this sucks art is so commercialized the wealthy vacuum up everything you know real artists anarchists they they can't afford to eat and make their art anymore now i have become a part of the system that makes that happen but i it's not my fault i'm just working my way into you know the system is corrupt you need to corrupt yourself to to work within it and they Mm -hmm. all justify themselves um 
you know, to no avail at the end of the movie. In real life, this doesn't happen, right? In real life, they just go on to be rich and become the people who profit off of these these paradigms. Um, but in this movie, they, yeah. they get some, you know, consequence. I do, I do love that you brought up hubris uh, because, you know, hubris is this kind of human arrogance. Mm-hmm. And uh, there is a scene when Bryson... So before we have our first death, Bryson is loading up like the back of his pickup truck with these boxes of um, Deese paintings. And on the side of a building, there's this huge mural of two eyes. They're painted in gray tones and they're just staring out. So it's kind of like, um, it reminds me of the Great Gatsby actually with the eyes of God. And in The Great Gatsby, it's this, like, optometry uh, sign or something that has, like, two eyes and gold-rimmed glasses. And it they're referred to, like, in analysis and stuff as the eyes of God. I'm sorry, Great Gatsby fans, if I'm getting this wrong. I studied it back in grade 11, so that was, like, nine years ago now. Please be kind to me. But these eyes of God, we also see watching Bryson. Now, Bryson, they watch him. You know, he's supposed to be... Um, uh, just delivering the boxes. He's not supposed to know that they contain these paintings. You know, his hands should be clean, essentially. But under this watchful gaze of the eyes on this building, we watch Bryson's hubris, his arrogance come out, where he opens up one of the boxes that have been sealed with nails, right? You know, they're not to be opened, and even decides to steal right from the goods that he's transporting you know he's hubristic he thinks he can get away with this and so we see these eyes of god watching him and i think uh bryson's hubris is really what kicks off um the murder party um (laughs) where we see all of these people who have you know their egos have grown too large for their bodies their hubris has come out they think themselves higher than gods you know they think themselves so powerful and that's like a symptom of capitalism right you know to think that they are better than greater than to think that they are larger than life and i love the the fucking mural of those eyes on the side of the building because it's like no they are now being watched by some sort of spirit or higher being or they're being watched by art itself oh i like that do you want Um, me to go with fire yeah go with fire okay so fire is a point that comes up at the very beginning because before the artist vetral deese dies he started to burn his own paintings and fire and death in this film are mobilized by art the art is the killing tool Mm. so each of deese's paintings contains his blood and his blood carries within it some sort of fire likely a reference to Deese's childhood because when he grew up or where he was growing up his childhood home uh was burned down killing his mother and sister and fire and the flammability of the paintings we see this in Bryson's death one of the fire like one of the paintings actually lights itself on fire and um it's a way for the painting to kind of self-destruct right and so fire is this destructive force that we see and the paintings 
are an accelerant and they're mm. and the fire kind of is evocative of rage you know uh Dees is displeased by the way his paintings are being shown you know that they weren't being destroyed so they seek to destroy themselves and Dees seeks to you know like output his rage at how his paintings are being shown um by lighting fire to them and uh this part about Dees putting a piece of himself into each painting he's, he's created reminds me of the picture of Dorian Gray, mm. right? The picture of Dorian Gray, um, he has the painting of himself and he never ages, instead the painting ages. We kind of see a bit of this with Deese, or at least it reminded me, because Deese literally puts his own blood into his paintings and his paintings, instead of him living longer than his painting, the paintings live longer than Dees, and they live out his will and his wishes, which is for them to be destroyed. And if they can't destroy themselves, then they might as well destroy the people who are marketing them. So they act to fulfill his revenge and avenge against the people who went against his dying wishes. Now, do you have a comment for Fire? Yeah, I mean, I think... It was, um, I think it was really interesting that, yeah, like, like you said, these, these paintings sort of take on this, you know, the cleansing power of fire and they're going to mm. sort of, uh, scorched earth, like get rid of everything that gets in the way of Deesa's wishes being fulfilled. I also like, and this is purely my interpretation and I'm wondering what you think, but at the end of the movie, um, you know, the stolen Deese paintings are being sold by a homeless man on the street and they're sort of being pinned to the fence and he's like, oh, I don't know, five bucks and someone's walking away with it. Something about the tone of the scene and this is like something that, you know, we would have to f have a filmmaker on to like, for me to understand why I'm feeling this way. Um, something about it feels optimistic to me. It feels like this is not yes. an encroachment. Like this is this would not be violating Deese's wishes if these people want to own the paintings and have them in their house. That is the the uh, the ending that I envision. Is these people will not be consumed by the dark spirits within the paintings. These folks are just genuine art mm. enjoyers, and they're going to go home, and the thing's going to hang up somewhere in their home and be kind of creepy, you know, for for time immemorial. That's the vibe that I get, and that's the sort of like headcanon and ending that I have put onto things. Just like how I've assumed a happy ending mm -hmm. for Coco, I've assumed a happy ending for those paintings and the people who have brought them into their home. Um, so you know, maybe they're the last, I, the last en embers of a smoldering fire in in that sense. Yeah, I think you're actually absolutely correct. Like it is an optimistic. Oh, excuse me. Wow. <laughs> it is an optimistic scene, and I think it's because. You know how Josefina, uh, she stole the paintings from his apartment and then claimed that she found them in a dumpster? Mm. Well, this man who's selling the paintings on the side of the street for $5, he genuinely did find the paintings. So he has actual claim to them as he is an owner of them because he found them. Mm. Um, he may have found them in a truck uh, an abandoned truck at an abandoned gas station. So he is the genuine rightful owner of the paintings and he doesn't care who the artist is. He doesn't care about the story, but he puts a price on them that he thinks is valid and justified. Mm -hmm. And that price as it's painted on cardboard, literally 
he thinks it's worth $5, so it's worth $5. Whereas otherwise that painting would have probably sold for like a million dollars, right? But that's only in the art world where they've built all these stories and they've inflated the prices because just because they can. Whereas this guy, he's selling it for his need and for sustenance, right? Mm-hmm. And I mean that I think so. I think that think that dovetails into the last topic that we had written down to talk about, which was homelessness. Um, yeah, there's a lot of homelessness in the movie, right? There's uh, the homeless man at the end of the movie. There is hobo man. There, Dam Damrish was homeless six months before uh, the movie begins, and Dees himself was homeless at one point. Yeah, so I thought it was very interesting how they kept tying homelessness in, like. By the way, the there there's oh man when when Hobo Man is like chasing Morph down the hallway and like Hobo Man is on crutches and he keeps like smacking his crutches against like the walls and stuff. That was the fucking scariest part of the film for me. Like it was beautiful, it was striking, it was scary. I loved it. Um and I really like how Hobo Man said like a few a few different lines kind of like an NPC. He said, like, have you ever felt invisible? Which is the experience of homeless people. They feel invisible because they blend into the background and they're completely ignored by people walking on the street. But he also says that he once helped build a railroad. And that got me thinking about um, the Chinese immigrants in Canada who were brought here to build a railroad, but then were completely, like, disregarded once they were done their work. Like, you're done your labor? Oh, we don't care about you anymore. You don't exist. And we see homelessness with Deese, right? He was displaced from his home after a fire he, he was taken from his abusive father and put into an orphanage. And I thought it was interesting that he also spent two years in military service before having a breakdown, which led to him going and killing his father. Mm -hmm. But this theme of war veterans plays in with homelessness as well, because we know that a lot of our war vets are, after they are soldiers in the war, they are completely disregarded and, you know, kind of brought back as, like, different people, you know, suffering from shell shock, uh, you know, PTSD, mm -hmm. and they're no longer helped. So I love how they bring up uh, veterans just in, like, different piecemeal points in this movie, you know, with Deese having been part of um, the war, with Bryson's dog tags that he's wearing, and with Gretchen's amputation. Mm -hmm. So she loses her arm to an art piece and ends up bleeding to death. When I originally saw that, I was like, oh, Gretchen will survive because she only had her arm amputated. But she would have survived if there were been, had been someone around to help her. Right. And, you know, this harkens to a lot of the vets who did die, like, in army hospitals because they didn't have the appropriate... Um, care to help with an amputation where they could have just bled out right but if you have the appropriate care then you can still live after an amputation mm -hmm. but if you don't have that care well you're kind of fucked and as we know art tends to reflect life and life will reflect art back and Deese's art showcases the inner war and turmoil that he experienced with coping with his trauma but the thing about art is that it doesn't yield solutions. 
Art gives expression to human suffering. It is a vehicle for feelings, but it doesn't offer those solutions. Though maybe the solution that Deese's art is offering is those $5 that the homeless man gets at the <laughs> end of the film for selling his art. Maybe that's the solution we get is that art can be a form of capital traded for a more art for a different form of capital. I don't know. You know, I, it made me think of this quote and like you, you're the one who included this in the notes here, but it, that, that old quote, I don't even know if it's attributed to anyone in particular, but about how art is meant to comfort the disturbed and disturb the comfortable. And you mentioned yeah. how it's like, it's a vehicle for, you know, like radical voices and, and messages and things like that. Right. And, and it sort of transcends the way the world is and often points to the way the world ought to be or the way that we can all recognize things as innately unfair. Right. And I think like, mm -hmm. there's a lot to be said about that when it comes to Deese's art, but also I think like this movie in general, a lot of the times throughout it, you know, we've been talking about it as sort of like an angel of death story, uh, uh, reflecting that like the biblical tale of the plagues and things like that, where the morally righteous survive and, you know, the, the corrupted, die brutally and those people are just simply like reflections of people who work in the art world i'm sure there's plenty of people who saw this movie work in that sphere and are like well i've done stuff way worse than <laughs> like what these people have done yeah. like the stuff that they do is by no means beyond the realm of like reality or it's it's not even that like i would say not that bad right most of the stuff that they do is certainly not things mm -hmm. that any of us i don't think anyone with like a, like a real functioning worldview would say that these things like deserve death um but yeah. that is the paradigm that this movie sets and i think that that is a real way of like who said disturbing the comfortable like maybe making people reflect on on the error of their ways um yeah i think i think deese is like even his name is pretty interesting because like it you know it's a phonic play on disease you know deese disease where you know that can refer both to a sickness and a sort of plague mm -hmm. right or just to your uncomfortable dis-ease you know and i i guess d's was a pretty uncomfortable guy so maybe art brought him comfort yeah i mean i think that's like that's the implication that i have is like he makes this art as a way of dealing with his trauma that he carries from like fucking pick your poison mm -hmm. like an abusive household or a fire that killed his family or military service or when he killed his dad or murder or being yeah. experimented on in a hospital for the criminally insane like yeah and the murders so <laughs> i mean like there's uh there's a lot in his past and i think like creating this stuff is how he remained comfortable I almost look at it as like, like we, you know, we talk about how they sort of violated his wishes by stealing the art, Josefina did in particular. When you look at it that way, that he's using this to deal with his trauma, it's almost like they read his diary and then published it, which is yeah. like, by the way, I still don't know how I feel about the diary of Anne Frank. I understand that it's a powerful book and everything, but like, I, did you have to read it as a kid? Um, uh, we had like the option okay. to read it. We had like six books we could choose from or something, and I did not opt to read it. But one of my friends did. I had to read it, and I was like, "Man, there's parts when I'm reading this that I'm like, oh uh, yeah, I'm reading like a teenage girl's diary, and that feels messed up." Like again, totally understand the historical cultural significance, and it is an important piece of literature. There's no doubt about that. But it was a mm. little bit like, "Man, I am really violating someone's privacy here," which doesn't feel good. 
Um, it's very intimate. It, it sure is. Um, I guess we can move on to some questions that uh, <laughs> we have Ooh. for each other to, to wrap things up here. We've got a few listed out. This has been a long episode, but that's okay. We do this for fun. So, you know, <laughs> can be what it yeah, is. Yeah, and we're going to edit it. Psh. Yeah. You're not going to hear all those bad jokes I made. They <laughs> weren't funny. Um, or you will. Please include the bad I jokes. I, I love them. Um, <laughs> one of the questions I had, and I, I put this on our Discord. This will be I, one of the last pieces we have uh, of discourse we have on our Discord. Um, how do we feel in general about straight actors playing gay characters? This is now the second time Jake Gyllenhaal's done this. Uh, Brokeback Mountain being the notable first. Um, yeah. Director Dan Gilroy stated, by the way, that he wrote more Vanderwalt to be sexually fluid because he personally believes that sexuality is far more fluid than society does. Uh, I suppose mainstream society, which, like, I would agree with that. Um, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm one who, even though I personally identify as bi, I'm also kind of like, but how much... I understand labels mean things to people, but also how much do we really... How necessary are they? Like, people can just sort of feel ways, and that's fine. Um, but yeah, anyway... I, I don't know. We heard from Lord Shen and other folks on our Discord saying, I don't really feel that it's a huge problem, but how do you feel about it? I mean, specifically in the case of Jake Gyllenhaal, I feel fine yeah. about it. Because, like, I... So, I I am a diehard Heath Ledger fan. Oh, and yeah. I'm, like, low-key, high-key obsessed with him. Mm-hmm. Uh, rest in peace. Yes. But, like, Jake Gyllenhaal hooked up with Heath Ledger, so I... I'm totally good with it, but I don't know about, like, I feel a lot more strongly about cis people playing trans characters because I don't, I don't think we quite live in a society yet where cis gendered people really understand transgendered people, Yeah, you know, and uh, wow, I just said transgendered, but like, (laughs) whatever, to make the words equal English, I don't know. Shannon is over party. English is stupid. I, I, I love this <laughs> stupid language that we speak, but um, I feel a lot better about straight actors playing gay characters because sexuality is really fluid. So, like, if you go on, like, the 100% model, like, there are very few people out there that are either 100% straight or 100% gay. Mm-hmm. Even if you're sitting at, like, 98% straight, that leaves a 2% of questioning, so I think any of these straight actors that do play gay characters, it's easier for them to tap into the gay experience. Um, and there's a lot more information out there about what it's like to be a gay person. And personally, like, just watching Jake Gyllenhaal's performance, he did a fantastic job of getting across that feeling of gay confusion. Um, and just like the gesticulations that are made by someone who is queer, right? He, he very much embodied queerness. So I feel like he did a very good job of portraying it. Even if, you know, Jake Gyllenhaal is like a very straight man, Mm -hmm. which I mean, I really hope you're not Jake Gyllenhaal. (laughs) I hope you're like fluid or bisexual (laughs) or something. Call me. But like. I, I felt pretty good about it in this movie, at the very least. Yeah, yeah. I'm in agreement. I think we kind of land on the same place. I don't, I don't really have an issue with <laughs> with it. I, it's not, like, the biggest deal, although, you know, I, that being said, like, I'm also really excited for, like, the new Billy Eichner movie, which the name is escaping me right now, but, like, 
one of like the first if not the first like gay male rom-com like to exist which is like very exciting so like stuff like that is like stuff we don't see very often so it's there's still a ways to go but i think yeah you're right like the there's much more progress made on the gay front than the trans front on on this sort of thing i don't know that hopefully that wasn't like a bad phrasing of what i was trying to say um that's about right anyhow unfortunately shannon do you own any art and and if so what do you really value about it uh i'm narrating for the audience now shannon is getting up and going to something in the background of their frame to go pick up a piece of art and oh very cool tell me about this it's like i'm seeing like multicolored blobs yeah so i i love art and i do actually own some art so Mm. i have two um canvas so like painted art pieces that i've actually purchased Mm -hmm. this one that i have here is like a square and my sorority sister and one of my good friends ailish uh painted it for me i commissioned it from her when i first moved to saint john's because i was really missing home and because i love her art style Mm. And I just told her I want the colors teal and pink in it. And she did everything else on her own. And I really love it. Um, oh, I guess I also have, like, art, as in, like, tattoos art. That's true, um, yeah. Which I think are, yeah, also art. And I I really do value my art. It makes me really happy. Like, I, whenever I look at this painting, like, it reminds me of the person who painted it. And then it reminds me of our relationship. And then it reminds me of everyone else in relation to that relationship. Mm -hmm. And this, like, painting I commissioned for my friend, like, it, 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 I I, I don't know. It makes me feel the warm and fuzzies. Yeah. I love feeling the warm and fuzzies. What what about you, Jake? Do you have any art? What, what do you value about it? I've, I've got quite a few different pieces of art. And maybe, like, instead of trying to describe what these look like on our podcast, which is an audio format, maybe we'll post <laughs> these on, on our Instagram. Um, yeah. But, like, I've got a couple of different pieces that my grandmother painted. And my grandmother was, like, a really talented painter, um, which was something that she discovered, like, after she retired. And um, it, it was something that she picked up as a hobby. And she was really, really good. And a lot of people in our family tried to convince her that like, hey, you could sell these. Like, they're really good. She never wanted to. She just wanted to give them away to members of the family. Um, and again, we could post the photos later, but I have uh, a painting of like a fisherman who's out in a canoe at sunset and he's sort of silhouetted against the lake and it's really cool. And I actually got uh, the image of that fisherman tattooed on my chest after she passed away in 2017. So, um yeah, there's quite a bit. And then I've got other art. Like I've got a painting of like a sort of abstractish painting of a red Toronto streetcar that my mom got for me as a graduation gift. Uh, I've got a painting that my brother gave to me as a housewarming gift when I moved in with my partner. My partner's got a painting of some icebergs that she got from Newfoundland. Um, she went on like an iceberg Aww. like tour. Like, I don't know, one of those boat tours where you can go look at icebergs. And there yep. was an artist like selling paintings at like the this the stop the gift shop so she she bought that one um yeah we've got quite a few different paintings and i mean and i've got tattoos as well i've actually got one that like commemorates um tom thompson the painter for he's like a famous canadian painter for people who don't know he painted a lot of landscapes of algonquin park and stuff like that so i mean 
there's a lot of life uh, there's a lot of art in my life that means a lot to me and this is what i meant to say earlier when like for me art is very sentimental and i would never try to quantify anything about any of these things you know i would never be like oh my god my grandmother's painting of a fisherman at sunset uses fucking nightshade blue and (laughs) azure bloom like i i don't know i i these are things I couldn't imagine trying to quantify as to like, I'm just like, this is awesome. She made this for me. That means a lot. Um, all of that. Another question I have that I didn't like include here, but I want to ask you is like, are there pieces of art that you've seen? Cause you mentioned you like going to galleries. Can you think of any off the top of your head that you like, that just made an impression of you on you, either positive or negative that, um, Cause like I've got some examples. I also go to like Tom Thompson again. Like if you look up Jack Pine, famous Canadian paintings that sort of like helped inspire sort of our national identity uh, as like naturey folksy people, um, which is variously true and untrue in the modern age. But anyhow, yeah. What are what are your thoughts? Um, there was this art exhibit at the museum, which is like in Kitchener Waterloo, yeah, yeah. and. Uh, it was like naked uh, so like it was all paintings of like nudity and stuff oh. and I remember going with my friend and the two of us stood in front of this one painting and it was a picture of Adam and Eve and Adam had like a like an apple in one hand and a piece of apple in the other hand and he was like force feeding Eve oh. and I, uh, I like I remember standing in front of this painting for a good like 30 40 minutes like with my friend just talking about the painting and the implication of that and like how does this imagery of adam and eve like her being force-fed how does that change the story and like how does that really like add a different lens and perspective and like i'm i i know i took a picture of the art like the the piece and like the name card but just so I could, like, remember who the artist is. But I, I have no idea who the artist is. It's been years now. Like, this was many, many years ago. And I, like, I still think about that whenever, like, topics of the Bible at all come up. I'm like, oh, I remember standing in front of that painting, like, talking about it. And, oh, I like, I, I love that about art. Like, it takes me back to a certain point in time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of my favorites is I, I saw a piece at the AGO, so the Art Gallery of Ontario in Toronto, for, for those of you who don't know. And um, it's called, I had to look it up like while we were recording. It's actually called Untitled, but then in brackets, Portrait of Ross in LA. Um, and oh, it's really cool. unassuming because you walk into a room and it is literally just a pile of candy on the floor, like wrapped individual candies, like the type of like sweets that you would get at the end of a, a restaurant meal or something like that. And uh, it doesn't really mean anything to the viewer until you read the plaque that accompanies it. And uh, it was created by an artist, uh, Felix Gonzalez Torres, in 1991. And uh, it is named after his partner who died of AIDS in 1991. And so the pile of candy is um, the same weight as uh, Russ, the, the man who passed away. And it's meant to reflect, like, the way that he sort of, like, lost his his body mass, right? You're, so you're meant to take pieces of candy from the thing. So gradually it becomes smaller and smaller and sort of wastes away in the corner. Um, and it's, it's wow. meant to reflect the way that his partner sort of, like, 
wasted away and also how the public is taking pieces away from him right like it's it's sort of like the way that mm. culture sort of left people behind and there's sort of this shared responsibility um it's a really powerful piece i think once you like know that uh that history of it um there's also an artist uh francisco goya he's like one of my favorite painters in addition to tom thompson who he was actually a spanish court painter in like the 17 and 1800s um and he did all these like really like subversive paintings of the royal family where he like mixed in these little like messages that he didn't really approve of them and what they were doing there was like things where like it was alleged that like the queen was actually running the country and the king didn't really know what he was doing even though the king was supposed to be the monarch so he made family portraits where like the queen was actually in the highest central position to like show subversively that she was actually the one in charge um, and he also like painted himself into the background. Like he appears in his own painting, <laughs> basically obscured in shadow in the back. And he's looking directly at the viewer kind of like he, he's got this face on, like, do you believe this shit? Like, you, come on. And that stuff I find really cool. And then after the Peninsular War, um, when France invaded Spain in the early 1800s, he was like traumatized and he had uh like i believe depression and dementia and he made these series of paintings called the black paintings which is like himself with like bats and owls swooping around his head and um he he like drew on the walls of his house that he lived in until he died and he just i think he's like a fascinating story because he was so subversive and then he ended up being like artistically like rather sort of advanced and and like his style changed so mm -hmm. much over the course of his career as an artist and and toward the end his paintings were not really um were not really like as well known mm -hmm. oh he also did that famous like um saturn devouring his son painting which like i think most people know it's like absolutely horrifying to look at anyway yeah oh damn some some art that i love talking for too long about <laughs> This is good to know. Yeah. I didn't know you were, like, so into art. I'm really into the art that I know, but I don't have, like, an ex expansive knowledge of it. <laughs> yeah. Should we just do one more question and then announce? Sure, you pick. Is it necessary to have tastemakers? Okay. I, I will ask you that because you wrote the question. Okay. So, Jake, what do you think? Is it necessary to have, quote-unquote, tastemakers? Yeah, I think, like, for me, one of the questions that this movie brought up throughout is, like, who says what's good and what isn't, right? Again, who is to say that, like, mm. whatever painting that's priced at $4 million is worth any more than the, the streetcar painting that I have hanging in my living room, right? Um, it's interesting because I feel like there's value to having expertise, right? Like, you, if you know the history of this mm. art form, if you know the 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 past artists that this work is drawing from the the historical cultural references that this is making right i get a lot of like i was mentioning francisco goya a lot of his art doesn't make all that much sense or have that much impact if you don't know about the peninsular war or like the mm. state of the spanish royal family in the 1700s which obviously i would not know if not for the paintings so like yeah there's context that is important to know it's important to have people around who can explicate these things and and make them known and and give a thing the full context so that it can be appreciated in its in its natural state that being said i just think i i just have no time for like pretentiousness that's my only thing like yeah I, there is like art that i've seen like 
graffiti that's like spray painted on the side of buildings we've got a whole place graffiti alley here in toronto where like there's incredible art just like <laughs> on people's dumpsters on like restaurant dumpsters and stuff that i think is amazing and and there's art that is you know made specifically to uh to go away or to to be eroded over time and things like that so do we need tastemakers? No, I don't need someone to tell me what's good and what's not, but we absolutely need explicators. We need people to tell us mm. what's going on with this piece of art because otherwise, you know, things won't be appreciated for it. And also, I am 100% like evidence of that problem since I don't know what the fuck is the big deal with the Mona Lisa. Uh, so <laughs> what do yeah, you think? I, I, uh, I, I'm... I'm torn on it because of the pretentiousness. Um, I do think it's actually like, I think it's very important to have tastemakers, mm. not, not influencers, you know, <laughs> not, not, you know, Instagram influences or whatever, but I think tastemakers are very important because they steer our culture in a certain way. Like I watch a lot of like, I, I know nothing about it, but I fucking love watching fashion shows. Okay where like there are creators like creating new fashion pieces and stuff um they do it a lot on drag race and that's where i picked up on fashion because you can see how fashion um portrays culture and fashion becomes culture and it comes from a cultural place and i think what a tastemaker can do is they hold this certain um capital right the capital that is taste and they can decide oh we're going to start appreciating you know trans culture mm. right and so a tastemaker in north america could suddenly make a trans artist or art that you know portrays transness and suddenly bring that to a much wider more wealthy audience mm. and so a tastemaker can essentially if if i'm understanding it correctly a tastemaker can essentially decide what marginalized groups the upper class suddenly injects money into by supporting those artists mm. so perhaps there is a very you know unknown like gay latino man who is starting to make art and just graduated from art school and a tastemaker decides oh i saw their work at this show and it's amazing suddenly our gay latino you know he's getting this injection of money who hopefully then he would be using that in very grassroots ways but that would also lend more attention to artists that are similar to him right and that would lend attention to the gay latino community and so on and so forth and so this tastemaker just by choosing one specific you know um painting or kind of fashion or genre of even books or something has injected life into an underknown or unknown you know uh, genre or outlook or culture mm. so i i think it's very important to have informed tastemakers who understand where human society in general is heading toward and to steer the upper class who thinks they have taste and who want <laughs> to have taste and who want to be tasteful and who want to be classy um to steer them in the correct direction because they also could steer them in the wrong direction direction if they're you know like uh giving lens to very orthodox or racist art you know mm. 
then it could be, you know, kind of quid pro quo or status quo maintenance instead of, you know, opening up the doors of culture to, you know, more and having that mosaic as opposed to a melting pot. So, yeah. I love that. Um, all right, Shannon, we've been, we've been on, um, we've been on Velvet Buzzsaw for a, a, while. a couple hours almost. Um, I think we're about ready to introduce our topic for next week. Um, you know what? I want to, I want to pretense this a little bit. I want to prelude this a little bit. <laughs> we preface, preface this. Um, preface. We, at one point, like a few episodes ago, I can't remember which one it was. We said like, oh, let's, we should do an animated movie. We should like come up with an idea. Like we should, we should watch an animated horror movie. I don't know what that is. Um, and then we asked for recommendations on discord actually we just mentioned animated movies and lord shen was like oh you guys should totally do an animated movie and we were like oh absolutely do you have any recommendations and lord shen god bless you put together like a very (laughs) thoughtful list of like 10 or 12 movies that it was like here's why this one's good it might be great to talk about and then shannon got to pick this week and shannon was like cool we're gonna do none of those and we're gonna do this one instead so lord shen once again we thank you very much for all of your kind attention and and diligence shannon what movie are we watching next week to be fair (laughs) i picked the movie like minutes mere minutes before lord shen sent that Mm. message and like list of 10 movies so we will we will get to some of those but we are going to be covering one of my favorite movies and don't you dare say it's not gay because they are the gayest gang around we are going to be looking at scooby-doo on zombie island which is a 1998 film and it is iconic jake have you seen this movie before i have not i've seen like a handful of like scooby-doo cartoons i saw the live action ones which like Maybe we'll talk about this in the episode, but I found out that the live-action Scooby-Doo movie was supposed to be, like, an R-rated parody, and then they, like, cut out major parts of the... Yeah, there was, like... So there was, like, mad, like... Yeah, there was, like, mad weed jokes in addition to the ones that were already in there. There was, like... Fred was, I believe, canonically gay. Like, it was a whole bunch going on and uh yeah they edit it out and there's things where it's like they open up the van door and like a bunch of smoke comes out and like that's never explained but that was like because of a joke that got cut out of the movie um also tim curry was supposed to be in it and then he refused when he found out that scrappy Doo was in the movie um which, <laughs> which is hilarious um Oh my God. Anyhow, but that's not the movie we're watching. We're watching Scooby-Doo on Zombie Island, not whatever the hell the live-action Scooby-Doo is called. Well, I I need to re-watch the live-action Scooby-Doo's because, I mean, now that I'm old enough and gay enough and a stoner enough, I'll, like, understand the jokes. Even if they're not made, you can still find them in there. 100%, yeah. Wow. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'm excited to get into Scooby-Doo on Zombie Island. I don't know, like, yeah, I don't know much about it. I, and I don't know about, like, <laughs> the lore of Scooby-Doo. Like, um, you don't need is anything. this a reboot on the 1960s cartoon? Is this a continuation of the 1960s cartoon? None of this is stuff that I know. Um, but, like, yeah. I'm a, I'd say it's a continuation. I'm excited to get yeah. into it. I'm, I'm very excited. I feel like a real, like, um difference maker in a scooby-doo narrative is is the spooky thing really 
what it is or is it like a guy in a mask because the classic is it's a guy in a mask so i don't know will the gang have to confront real zombies or is it all a plot we'll have to see and i'm i'm excited to find out (laughs) oh you'll like it you'll like it all right um cool man (laughs) i don't know i guess that that brings us to the end yeah um we've had a pretty thorough discussion and talked about a lot of art and I, does that mean we're ready to say farewell uh, I I hope all your crops are watered oh. and that the winds are favorable I hope that your creative endeavors and the art that you want to create is satisfying to you um, and that's all it has to be alright goodbye everybody <laughs> Bye. We still don't know how to end an episode that has not changed. <laughs>